This is the Courtesy versus Carter podcast, hosted by me, Caroline Lancaster, with my daddy, Lee. Courtesy versus Carter, Chapter 12, Planning a Tractor K to Washington. In early October of 1978, planning began for a tractor cage to Washington. In Lubbock, Texas, the AAM was trying to figure out how to move tractors from all over the United States to Washington and arrive there at the exact same time. In 1978, there was no GPS's, no Google Maps, and uh, there was no internet. They used matches to figure out how far a tractor could travel in a day and then how many days it would take for tractors on each route to reach Washington. Eight main departure points on the major highways through the Midwest were chosen and timed where the tractors would arrive at several campgrounds in Virginia and Maryland the week before the planned invasion the following Monday. The starting points were Houston on I-59, Abilene on I-20, and Amarillo on I-40 in Texas, Topeka, Kansas on I-70, Lamar, Colorado on U.S. Highway 400, Grand Island, Nebraska on I-80, Mitchell, South Dakota on I-90, and Fargo, North Dakota on I-94. Farmers from further out west truck their equipment to the nearest departure point by trailer and each leg had a wagon master at the head of the column with Gerald McCathern serving as national wagon master driving an international harvester 1486 on the leg out of I-40 from Amarillo. The wagon master for the southernmost leg that would lead the Georgia farmers into D.C. was male Mad Dog Cherry. The tractor cage's planned departure date was January the 22nd, and they were planning to arrive in D.C. on February the 12th. When Senate and Congress calendars were set in early January, they arranged a week-long adjournment for the period when they had been told the tractorcade was going to arrive. So when word of this came to the national headquarters, the departure date was moved up an entire week to Monday, January the 15th, with an estimated arrival date of February the 5th, 1979 at 7 o'clock in the morning, rush hour. The tractors would travel the interstate system the entire time at 15 miles an hour and average 100 miles a day for
for 16 days plus two Sundays for rest. Suggested checkpoints and setups were distributed to all the participants a couple of weeks ahead of their departure date. The checklist and final instructions were mailed out and they were also printed in the American Agriculture News in early January. The tractors were to be serviced with all the oil and filters changed. The batteries and alternators needed to be checked and changed if necessary. All the weights were to be removed. All the water was to be drained from the tires. The rear tires were to be swapped around so that the tread was pointing backward instead of forward. So the V, when you got on the cab, was pointing up instead of down. Like when you were getting onto the tractor, you'd see up instead of a v going down so they swapped them around thinking that this wasn't gonna let the tread get wore out as bad which it really didn't matter <clears throat> the rear tires were inflated to 35 pounds per square inch and the front tires had 40 pounds per square inch all the wipers, lights, and flashers were to be checked and working. Support vehicles and campers were to travel along with the tractor in a community. So each tractor had a camper and a fuel truck or a tool truck with it. What I've been told, there was an average of four vehicles per tractor, including the tractor. Each state had its own system of numbers and the equipment stayed in line according to its number. As the tractor came to Atlanta in 1977, as with the tractor came to Atlanta in 1977, the counties and the states were written in chalk on the tires and on the hoods. Signs and flags were all over the place, the American flag, the American agriculture flag, state flags, and Christian flags were on most every tractor. Lots of support vehicles were farm trucks and they were driven by wives or relatives. And you would see a lot of times a camper would be pulled behind the tractor. Suggested to be in the support vehicles were oil and enough fuel tanks to fill each tractor in the group. So you would have a fuel truck pull up at night and then you would have one support truck that would pull up and get enough fuel in that truck to fuel up all of the tractors in your group. They needed to have joint grease, wheel bearing grease, paper towels, windshield cleaner, hoses, wiper blades, belts, antifreeze, tools, battery chargers, flashlights, batteries, CBs, fuses, light bulbs, tape, jacks, a torch, a welder, an air compressor, tire patches, and a kitchen sink. Suggested supplies in the cab of each tractor was shoes, locks, chains, a thermos, shovels, blankets, and silver Alabama chrome duct tape. Each tractor and truck had to have a CB and a VHF radio was in the support vehicle. 
Channel 14 was a designated channel to the wagon master to communicate with the rest of the column. Every morning, fuel was donated by local farmers or fuel distributors, and it was hauled in on a tank truck. And no fuel was bought by the farmers after their initial fill-up when they left the farm. On Monday, January the 15th, 1979, at 8 a.m. Central Time, Gerald McCathern cranked up an international harvester 1486 in Bushland, Texas, and began the tractor cade to Washington. 210 tractors and trucks pull on to Interstate 40, just west of the Cadillac Ranch, and headed towards Amarillo. 110 tractors and trucks left Abilene, Texas about the same time. Eight vehicles rolled out of Bismarck, North Dakota in negative 25 degrees. On January 17th, the I-20 group that started in Abilene had traveled through Dallas-Fort Worth and were catching their breath in a place called Canton, Texas. The McCathern group on I-40 had passed through Oklahoma City and were resting in a place called Okima, Oklahoma, about 100 miles west of Fort Smith, Arkansas. 35 tractors and trucks left Wakini, Kansas, about 240 miles west of Topeka on slick, icy roads, but made it halfway to Topeka before the sun went down. The group in North Platte, Nebraska, and Mitchell, South Dakota left on the 17th. The groups in North and South Dakota were facing a blizzard coming in from Canada that forced them all to stop in Laverne, Minnesota before taking a detour due south and trying to catch up with the Nebraska group. On January the 20th, the Abilene group crossed the Waukeda River in Monroe, Louisiana, where they spent the weekend. And on the 23rd, the group met with the governor of Mississippi, its agriculture commissioner, and they addressed the Senate and the House in Jackson. The governor, Cliff Finch, invited the group to the governor's mansion to spend the night. When the Kansas group passed through Kansas City, Missouri, they picked up a farmer whose wife was due to give birth in about a month. The baby girl came ahead of time when the daddy had already gotten in the tractor and took off, and the baby was born the following day, and her name was Parody. On Wednesday, January 24th, the Abilene group was in Birmingham, Alabama. Gerald McCathern's group arrived in Nashville. The Kansas group stopped about 70 miles east of St. Louis, Missouri in Vandalia, Illinois and had to stop because of ice. The three northern groups had combined and tried to outflank the blizzard but they finally ran out of luck and had to stop in Galesburg, Illinois. They were snowed in 
and delayed about 50 miles west of Peoria. When the Amarillo group arrived in Nashville, Tennessee, Houston County farmer Adam Andel's son, Richard, was working for Detroit Diesel up there at the time. When he found out that the tractorcade had stopped at the Nashville fairgrounds, he drove down to see them, and in the crowd he saw an antique propane-powered John Deere G with canvas sides. A farmer named Don Kimbrell drove a tricycle front-end open station tractor from Happy, Texas, all the way to Washington without a cab. The Georgia Group's original departure point was in Lake City, Florida, where farmers departed early on January the 22nd and headed north on 75. They arrived in Valdosta, picked up several South Georgia farmers, camped and departed the next day. The caravan arrived in Unadilla on the 23rd and camped next to the interstate until the next morning. Most of the South Georgia group chose to haul their equipment to Unadilla and depart with the Kerseys, including Gerald Long driving a Case 1570, Mr. and Mrs. Adam Andale with their Alice Chalmers 200 and a long wheelbase forward pulling a 20-foot camper, and the Wellses from Miller County driving a 4230 John Deere and a Winnebago. On January the 24th, the group left Unadilla with Tommy Kersey in the lead. The line had just got up to speed when Kersey radioed back to his wife that he had left his dinner sitting on the kitchen table. His wife radioed back that she would meet him at the next exit up the road with it. And the Georgia group was scheduled to meet the group from Houston arriving on I-20 at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium the next day. Tommy Fulford led a group out of Alamo into Dublin and on up I-16 where they spent the night at the Macon Coliseum parking lot before joining the main group at the I-16-75 split the next morning. In Dublin, Fulford opened the door on a brand new John Deere 4240 that was donated to him to drive to D.C. by United Tractor Company, a John Deere dealer in Douglas, and he let a reporter ride all the way to Macon in the cab for an interview. A lot of the tractors driven to Washington were donated by local equipment dealers that had a lot riding on the outcome of the tractor cade too. Herman Talmadge's mother, Miss Mitt, reportedly sponsored a 4640 from McCray that also made the trip to D.C. There was a lot of other minor routes and departure points that were used to matriculate all the tractors from areas not necessarily in the direct paths of I-20 and I-40 and all, such as the I-95 leg that brought up some of the the East Georgia farmers. A group of farmers from Sylvania joined above Savannah somehow around the 24th 
to meet the main group at Durham, North Carolina a few days later. A line of tractors and trucks from the west appeared on I-20 crossing the state line on the morning of January the 24th. Large red and green tractors with Texas and Christian flags were on every one. They had spent the night in Birmingham and stopped in the emergency lane for a while at the Highway 6 exit, right there where Six Flags now sits. One of the farmers, David Center, had a flat tire and they had to fix it. He also told me that while the group spent the night in Birmingham, side the interstate, every single flag on every tractor that they had got stole during the night. And I told him that there's a reason why the Lord made the Georgia state line. The Texas group met with national and Atlanta news crews before rolling on into Atlanta about 3.30 and they turned into the parking lot at Fulton County Stadium to meet with the 500 vehicle convoy front that was coming up from Unadilla on I-75. After a rally at Fulton County Stadium at 6.30 that evening, all the farmers turned in and spent the night in the campers. At 7 o'clock the next day, the tractor were up and rolling again and took 85 north with an escort to the state line by the Georgia State Patrol. The South Carolina State Police met them at the state line near Fairplay and led them up the very first exit ramp that they came to. Some of the tractors at the lead smelled a rat and thought they were being led off the interstate and away from their destination. After Tommy Kersey worked his way through the group, he got everybody calmed down and found out that the state patrolman was leading them to the campsite that they were going to spend the night at on Lake Hartwell, but it was several miles from any town. The next morning, the tractors were again rolling up the interstate towards Charlotte, North Carolina, where all of them spent the weekend at the Charlotte Fairgrounds, which is where uh, Charlotte Motor Speedway is. The tractor cade, no matter where it was, they did not travel any on Sundays. So the group waited until Monday morning to continue on north, and they spent the next night north of Durham. After a few days on I-95 and a couple of miles on I-40, the East Georgia group caught up with the I-20-85 group that evening. There wasn't an actual campsite in Durham to stop at, just a neighborhood where the tractors pulled offside the road and rested overnight. Plans were made to spend the night at a decommissioned army base near Petersburg, Virginia, which is also the site of one of the last battles of the Civil War on Monday the 29th. Whether the government or a private landowner made the call, there's no record or explanation why, but that camping fell through. 
And the tractor cave was put in a very dangerous position because they had to camp on the shoulder of the interstate. The call came from Mad Dog Cherry to park a tractor between each camper in case a car strayed off the path and there wasn't a whole lot of sleeping done that night in them campers. Uh, well, the next morning couldn't come quick enough and the column cranked up, warmed up, and got in gear for the final leg of the journey. A miscommunication at the toll plaza on 95 in Virginia caused a preview of what a pileup was going to look like with a stalled tractor. The head of the Virginia Department of Transportation threatened to send a bill to the American Agriculture Movement for all the tractors that passed through the tolls. And for a while, there was a tractor sitting and blocking every single traffic toll booth on that interstate until the situation got straightened out, which got straightened out very quickly. By evening, the farmers were all camped at a place called Pohick Campground on the Potomac River's west bank near Alexandria, Virginia. Another group of about a thousand farmers was camped nearby at Bull Run Regional Park, the site of another Civil War battleground. Another group, there they all sat and waited for the rest of the tractor cages to come out from the west to arrive, one of which had been delayed by several snowstorms. Gerald McCathern told the group that nobody, no matter who they were, was to cross that bridge into D.C. until Monday morning, so they all waited. Pohick Campground filled up pretty quick, and there were tractors all over Northern Virginia and Maryland. And on the east side of D.C., tractors sat out the weekend at RFK Stadium where the Redskins played. And tractors were parked at farms that had sent word they could hold 50 or 60 campers, and most of the time, a hundred of them would show up. While the tractorcade was headed east to Washington, D.C., the senior senator from Georgia and chairman of the Senate Agriculture Committee Herman Talmadge was headed west to California. After several years of battling alcoholism, he checked himself in to the Walter Reed Naval Hospital in Maryland and was then transferred to the Betty Ford Clinic out on the west coast. Two years after presiding over the Watergate hearings, Talmadge lost an adult son who drowned while swimming in Lake Lanier. He was checked in at Walter Reed, but left after only three days. Soon after that came a nasty and very public divorce to his very popular and well-liked wife, Betty. Right at the start of a new legislative session with new members of both houses of Congress, he was being scrutinized by the Senate for misappropriating campaign funds that was blamed on an aide that he had hired to help with his 1974 campaign. 
He admitted to appearing on the Senate floor while intoxicated only once, while escorting newly elected Senator Sam Nunn to his seat in November of 1972. After being confronted by his son, Gene, he removed himself from the powerful seat he had occupied for two decades to become a patient at a rehabilitation clinic with no timetable of return. The vice chairman of the Agriculture Committee, Jesse Helms of South Carolina, would run the committee until he came back. Thank you for listening to the Kersey vs. Carter podcast. We're just getting started. Check back every Monday for new episodes.